praises to Him. You know, in this world that we live in today, we do face perilous times. That's what 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3 tells us, and I'm going to turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you'd like to turn with me there in your Bibles, and uh, that's where we'll be this morning, talking about the perilous times that we live in, but more importantly than that, we're not just dogging on the times that we live in and how bad things are. Uh, There's not much hope and not much point to that. I mean, to some degree, we need to be aware of what's happening around us, yes, certainly, but if we stay there and if we don't see how we can move beyond that through faith in Christ Jesus, then we've left ourselves in a precarious place. And Paul didn't mention that in the last days perilous times shall come to leave us without hope, without direction, without purpose, and just to say, hey, buckle up your seatbelt because the ride's about to get bumpy and just wanted to warn you about that. Good luck while you're out there. No. That's not the sense of this passage. He is trying to cause us to see that we can rest in our Lord Jesus Christ no matter how perilous the days get. And we know that we live in difficult days, in troublesome days. That's what this word perilous means. We find it in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. And as we walk through this chapter, I'm convinced that we see at least five ways that we can rest in the Lord and that He wants to bring us rest even while we're faced with the problems and the persecution and the perilous days that we live in. And we're going to walk through that as we walk through this important chapter in God's Word. Last Sunday morning, Pastor Brad preached a powerful message about being ready for the rapture of the church. And and making sure that we know that we're ready, and and giving us a fresh burden for those that we love who may not be right with God and may not be ready for the rapture. But as we know that we're living in these last days, I don't mean by that we're living in the great tribulation, no. That's still future, but we know that the time is short and that we see the signs of the times are appearing all around us every day. And you know that things are inching closer and closer and closer uh, to what we see taking shape. And Lord willing, I'm, I'm almost done writing my next book, my second book, and it's going to speak about these things. It's called Rise of the One World Mind. How we see globalism rising in our world and how we see these things really taking shape. The mind of the Antichrist, that spirit, if you will, the mindset that people will have is really appearing in our world today. And I'm not preaching that today, but I just want you to see that we're living in this time on God's prophetic clock. And uh, somebody said if midnight is when the rapture happens, we must be at 11.59 and counting because it could happen at any moment. We know that we believe the rapture of the church is an imminent event. That just simply means it could occur at any time. No other signs need to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church. But we see our world moving in a global direction, presenting global solutions to all the problems that we see happening in our world. But there is a spirit of our age that Paul outlines here in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that the first thing we need to do is recognize this spirit that is dominating our culture today. And he wrote these words almost 2,000 years ago. And as time goes on, we see it unfolding more and more and more, this attitude that people have 
And we need, that's the very first thing we need to do before we can get to rest. We need to recognize this spirit of the age, this worship system that our world is in right now. And that's where Paul goes in 2 Timothy chapter number 3, that this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And then he launches over the next few verses into about 18 or 19, depending on how you count them, characteristics of these perilous times. What's the mindset that people are going to have at this time? And he starts out, For men shall be lovers of their own selves. I see this like the umbrella uh, or the top of the pyramid and everything else flows down from that. It all connects back to lovers of their own selves. And he begins to unpack and using some uncommon terms and unconventional language to describe the spirit of the age. But can I say, I've been saying this for years, and I believe the number one God in America is self. And we worship ourselves. Uh, can I use this analogy? We worship at the temple of self. And I hope that as I walk through some of these characteristics of the temple of self, you'll begin to recognize that your eyes will be open to how bad it is and what a cruel taskmaster self is. I don't think it's any uh, kind of coincidence that as we see the temple of self gaining in worshipers and adherents, we also see anxiety and depression and suicide numbers skyrocketing. Why is that? It's because when you're thinking about yourself and when you buy the messages of our time that you've got to look within yourself and you've got to find yourself and, and you've got to push yourself, promote yourself, be all that you can be and uh, put everybody else down and, and then you get out into the world and, well, let me back up just a second. You know, you're sitting there at your high school graduation and somebody gets up and says, now go out and change the world and everybody throws their hats in the air and they're having a wonderful time and they go out and party and celebrate. Yeah, we're going to change the world. We're out of school. It's done. And then they enter the workforce or they enter college and they realize, man, this is tough. And maybe some people breeze through college and then they hear that same thing four years later. Now you're going to go out and change the world. And then you've got your college degree in hand and you have to go to Starbucks and get a job making minimum wage. And you say, why did I go into all this debt when I could have just got this right out of high school? And why did I push myself for all this language and, uh, and all this education if I could have just gotten this job straight out of high school? So we realize that maybe I'm not going to change my world. Maybe I'm not going to be a world changer. Maybe I'm not going to be all that I can be. And what if who I am is simply not enough? And I think that's the lie that a lot of people are struggling with. What if who I am is simply not enough? What if I can't be enough? What if I can't change the world? What if I can't be enough? Enough in whose eyes? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Whose eyes am I looking in? Other people around me? Am I looking for validation from other people? Am I looking for my definition, my identity from the people around me? Or even from myself? And this is the classic battle that we see a lot of popular movies pick up on. And I hate to pick on Disney princess movies, but it's just so blatantly obvious there. I mean, you think about pretty much every single uh, recent Disney princess movie, going back to like The Little Mermaid, uh, and you think about The Lion King and some of these other movies, you see this battle. 
you know, their culture, their, their crowd, the people around them are saying, you have to be this. Ariel, you have to stay in the sea. You can't go out on land. And she says, no, I want to be part of their world. You know, the famous song from The Little Mermaid. I'm, I, I have a wife and daughter, so it's not like I'm sitting at home by myself watching Little Mermaid or anything, guys. You know. I've got to keep that man card in the back of my pocket, you know. <laughs> Anyways... I grew up with a sister and all that, you know, they were watching Little Mermaid and The Lion King and all those things. Anyways, I digress. But uh, uh, so you see this battle, this struggle, and it's portrayed in all, a lot of these movies targeted to kids. And we see this battle, and you can look across all the different movies, and you see that it's your culture that defines you. And then they try to break free from that and rebel against that to find themselves in their own definition of self and their own meaning and who I really am is deep within my heart and I've got to be who I'm supposed to be. And, and there's this battle and this struggle and it comes to some kind of resolution. But in fact, both of those are wrong in one sense. It doesn't point us to God. You see, our worth is not based in other people. Our worth is not based in ourself, but our worth is based in who God says that we are. And we are important to God because we are loved by Him you know, the, the taskmaster of self says you are loved because of what you do. You're loved because you're famous or you're loved because you make a lot of money or you're loved because you can uh, do this or do that that everybody likes. So you're loved based on what you do. But God's Word says no, you're loved based on who you are as created in the image of God. And so you see what a cruel taskmaster the self is and in the temple of self, it's all about me, 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 I, I, I. And that's where we are in our modern world today, worshiping at the temple of self. Even people who sit on church pews every single Sunday are still worshiping self. And they're using Christianity as a way to promote themselves or as a way to worship themselves instead of really connecting with God, instead of really worshiping Him. So when we fail to live up to our standards, that's when I believe anxiety and depression can flood our hearts and we feel like we can't measure up. We've got this standard of perfection in our mind and all that we're doing is worshiping self instead of just resting in the arms of our Lord who says you are enough. You know, cease striving and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God is exactly what that verse tells us out of Psalms. We've got it emblazoned on a picture right in the foyer between the two auditorium doors. Stop and look at that on your way out today and remind yourself, be still and know that I am God. Cease striving and know that I am God. God wants to give us rest. Rest from uh, this temple of self that discourages us and defeats us and leaves us burdened down, feeling like we'll never be enough. We're never good enough. But Christ has said, look at the cross. I love you this much that I would spread out my arms to die for you, to bring you into a relationship with me. And He invites us to come to Himself. We can't find it on our own. We can only find it in Christ Jesus. So this is the umbrella term here. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. And as we go through this, I'm going to go through it rather quickly instead of zeroing in on uh, every little thing. I'll just make a brief comment about these terms that he mentions. But I hope that in so doing, 
I don't discourage you any further, but that you begin to realize and your eyes are open to the temple of self and, and how worship in the temple of self is really geared in these days that we live in. Men will be lovers of their own selves. They'll be covetous. Literally, that means a lover of silver, a lover of money. Wanting more stuff. You see, besides self, another one of our favorite idols is stuff. And the temple of self is filled with all of our stuff that we have. And we're craving more and more and more. You get on social media and you see what so-and-so just bought. And you go, oh man, that's cool. I want one of those too. Or you see this trip that somebody's taking. Oh man, I wish I could go there. And it leads us to envy and jealousy. And uh, they even created that term, fear of missing out, because, man, look what these people are getting to do. I didn't get to go to the ball game yesterday. I don't have cable. I missed that. You know, and we, we feel like we're missing out. That's where the temple of self leaves us, feeling like we're constantly not enough. We don't have enough. And so we develop that spirit of covetousness that we're wanting what everybody else has. They're boasters and proud. These two things are connected. Boasting, of course, is just the external bragging, telling everybody how great you are, how much stuff you have, everything about you. Pride is that inward spirit of boasting that you feel puffed up. I'm better than they are. Uh, I'm driving around in my brand new pickup truck. Look how, better, how much better I am than those people over there in that old clanker. You know, I'm better than they are. Get out of the way. You know, and it's a self-centered mindset and if you doubt that just get out on the road and you see how self-centered everybody is and and i'll raise my hands as guilty there too because it's like where i've got to get to is much more important than where you've got to get to so get out of my way i'm coming through and we're running each other over and knocking each other out of the way to get where we've got to get to and honking our horns and saying come on what are you doing get out of the way i got somewhere i got to get to and so uh, we have this pridefulness that's in our heart and in our spirit. The next thing it says is blasphemers. We don't care. And it's not just talking about taking the name of God in vain, saying, oh my, you know what, taking God's name in vain. It's much more than that. So when you worship at the temple of self and it's all about you and it's all about your name, you don't care about the name of God. You don't care about uh, what God has said. You make up your own morality. You decide what's right. You decide what's wrong. And you walk in that. You don't care what God has said. And some of these other terms will mention that as well, including the very next three that we see at the end of verse 2. Disobedient to parents. Now, this is a place where we could park and, and talk to all the kids and the teenagers and say, hey, the Bible says to obey your parents. And yes, it does. But there's that spirit of rebellion that can be within us no matter how old or how young that we are. And that's really what the emphasis is here, is it's a spirit of rebellion that lurks within our hearts that says, I'm going to do what I want to do because I love myself. You can't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. You're not my authority. I determine what I'm going to do. And I am making up what is right in my eyes. A spirit of disobedience to parents. Unthankful. Unholy. Tied to all these things. I see all these things as linked together in this temple of self. There's no gratitude. There's no thankfulness. Because 
you owe me something. Entitlement. And I don't have to say it, but, you know, I, I will go ahead and say it, but have we seen a much more entitled generation that the government owes me everything or you owe me everything, my parents owe me everything, nobody wants to work hard for anything anymore, it's just give me everything for free. Education, everything, everything, just give it all to me for free. That sense of entitlement comes from a lack of thankfulness, a lack of gratitude. You know, this week I was meditating on my grandparents' generation. And some of you uh, were around during the times of the Great Depression here in America and how terrible those times were. They didn't have that sense of entitlement because they didn't have anything. They had to work hard just to exist. You know, we got to go yesterday, Christians involved with this group called Trail Life. It's a Christian alternative to the Boy Scouts. And we know how, uh, sadly, how far down the Boy Scouts have gone. But uh, they have a thing at Sycamore Shoals down in Elizabethan this weekend talking about the over-mountain men. And people from right up the road here in Abingdon, Virginia, went down there to close to Elizabethan, Tennessee, crossed over the shoals of the river, the shallow part of the river, to join. And they became the over-mountain men and helped in the battle of the revolution. And there was a lady that was there talking about some of the herbs that they would have used for medicine back in the late 1700s and how some of those things could be useful. And she had a, she had a funny saying. She said, you know, people always ask me, what kind of games did the kids play back in the 1700s and early 1800s? And she said, the whole family played a game every single day. It was called Let's Not Die. <laughs> That's the name of the game. Let's Not Die. <laughs> That's what they were focused on, just surviving, just making it through. And they didn't have a sense of entitlement because they didn't have anything to feel entitled to. They knew that we have to work hard for everything that we have. We have to expend our energy to make sure that we're all in this together and, and we're having to work hard to bring all these things together just so that we can survive one day at a time. But now that we've been so blessed with health and wealth and prosperity here in America, we are ungrateful for all of God's blessings that He brings our way. Uh, so unthankful, unholy. Again, when you set the standard of what's right and wrong, you're not going to be walking according to God's standard. And that creates an unholiness. Again, we're talking about the temple of self and in all the ways that it's a cruel taskmaster. And it leads us far, far, far away from the Lord God. We need to recognize these things in our day. If we don't recognize them, then we won't understand how great the good news really is. So he says in verse 3 that they're without natural affection. In other words, they're uncaring. They don't care about anyone else other than themselves. And when you're self-centered, that's all that it is. It's all about me. I don't care what's happening in anybody else's life. I just care about me. Truce breakers. In other words, they can't be trusted. Um, they're irreconcilable. In other words, uh, they're not easy to forgive. Uh, they're not one who will forgive. They're one who will hold a grudge against somebody. And they're false accusers. As it tells us here that uh, they slander, they lie, and they, they bear false witness. Again, they're just trying to promote themselves. They don't care who they hurt or who they leave in the wake of their pain, they're just out for themselves. And so they don't care about others. And now we get into a couple of words that we may not use very much in today's English, incontinent, which just basically means without 
self-control. Literally, that's what that word means. No self-control. Again, just pursuing what you want and the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of whatever passion is filling you at the moment. And you have a total lack of self-control over your mouth, over your actions, over any part of your life. Tied to that is the very next one, fierce. This literally talks about acting like a wild animal. And you can turn on the news and you can see some of the actions and how people are treating each other, abusing each other, even killing each other. And just here in Bristol, I saw an update this morning that a young man about 30 years old tried to stab his mother and did stab her and was found here in Bristol, Virginia just overnight last night. People are acting like wild animals and the news is filled with stories all across our land. When you're worshiping at the temple of self and you're living for me and mine and what I want, you care nothing about anyone else or harming them, it'll lead you to acting like a wild animal. Despisers of those that are good. This also carries the idea of despising what is good. Have we seen a day when people hate what God says is right more than we do today? We see people celebrating things that God says is an abomination, things that God says is morally wrong. And yet we want to change morality. And we think that we can change morality by popular vote. If enough people believe that something is right, therefore it is right. If enough people think that abortion is okay, therefore let's make it legal and let's say that it's okay. No, it's God who sets the standard for what is right and what is wrong. We need to have His standard to guide us in these ways. And we don't live in a world without a standard for morality. Otherwise, we could all make up our own morality. It's okay for me to kill people because I said it's okay for me to kill people. Do we live in a world like that? Obviously not. We need God and we need His morality. And it goes on in verse 4, they're traitors. In other words, they can't be trusted. They'll say one thing and do another. In fact, this word is used one other time in the New Testament. And it's used to describe the spirit of Judas Iscariot, a traitor, a betrayer. People that will say one thing and do another. People that will turn their back on you. Heady. Uh, in verse number 4, we see this word again. It's something that we don't use a whole lot today in the sense that it's meant here. It just means to be reckless. You know, you're totally wild, totally reckless in the way that you act, in the way you treat other people. High-minded. It goes back to the spirit of pride within us. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. Some study Bibles will tell us. And so we see this gets back to the very beginning of this list. Lovers of their own selves. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. All throughout this list we see that the temple of self is filled with self-love and doing whatever I want. It's an awful place to live. Because the outcome, again, is this depression. It's this anxiety. It's feeling like we're never enough. And everybody is in there pursuing their own self and hurting everyone around them in the process. Verse 5 tells us that they're having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. These people even appear to be worshipers of God, Paul is saying. But in fact, they're worshiping the temple of self instead of worshiping the one true God of all heaven and earth. His admonition is from such, turn away. We're supposed to turn away from this attitude, to turn away 
from the temple of self. And that's where we start. We recognize and we turn away from it. But he doesn't leave us there. In the rest of the chapter, he begins to unpack for us how we can rest in God instead of falling for the trap of the temple of self. And as we go through this, and and we'll go through it and unpack it, I want to drop down to verse number 9. He says, but they shall proceed no further. These people who are promoting this agenda, these people who are promoting this way of life, God says they're going to be exposed. But they shall proceed no further. For their folly shall be manifest unto all men, as theirs also was. So the first thing we got to do is to recognize how bad the temple of self is. But secondly, we rest in what God will do. God's going to expose these people for who they really are. And perhaps today you feel a little bit exposed in some of the thoughts and some of the attitudes that you may have believed in for as long as you can remember because culture and people have been pouring these lies into you and you've believed some of these lies of our culture and you've bought that and you feel a little bit exposed today. But don't stay right there. You've got to move on to these next steps to understand the rest that God wants to give you. And we rest in what God is going to do. God is going to set things straight. Those who are leading people down this path will be judged. They'll have to stand before God and give an account to God. And so we need to recognize that God is the one that's in control. But as we move beyond that, we rest in what God is doing. Notice verses 10 through 12. But thou hast fully known my doctrine my manner of life, my purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions. You know, these are the things that are the opposite of the temple of self. These are the things he went through for the cause of Christ and the things that were near and dear to him in his life, his doctrine, his manner of life, his purpose, his faith, long-suffering, charity, his love, his patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You know, we sing that song, Standing on the Promises of God, and we say, yeah, I'm, I love the promises of God's Word. Well, here's a promise from God's Word that people don't claim very much. You know, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will, shall suffer persecution. That's my promise of today. I'm grabbing hold of that one. (laughs) I don't think anybody's ever used this verse in that context. There are a lot of wonderful, positive, uh, uh, encouraging promises from God's Word. This one shouldn't discourage us. He's saying, he's just giving Timothy a reality check here. When you take your stand against the temple of self, People are going to reject you. People are going to speak evil about you. But stay true to the Lord. Stay true to His Word. Rest in God. It's God that's doing this. So we rest in what God will do, but we also rest in what God is doing. You see, it's not Timothy that's having to do the work. It's not Paul that's having to do the work. It's God that's doing the work in and through them. And they're just faithfully following God. Again, I go back to our Sunday school lesson that we had uh, across our classes and talk about Daniel in that den of lions. He just trusted in God. It said at the end of chapter 6, because he believed in the Lord his God. 
God delivered him through the persecution. He had to go into the den of lions. God didn't deliver him out of it before he went into it, but he delivered him through that den of lions. And that was his persecution. He faced persecution from the people who tried to entrap him. He faced persecution because he was led, he was arrested, he was tried and found guilty. He was taken to the edge of that pit. And he had to go down into the pit. And yet he was trusting himself into, in himself into the hand of Almighty God. And God rescued him through the persecution, through the trouble, through the trial. And we are in perilous days. But God will rescue us through these perilous days that we live in. And He is doing a work in our days. And we've got to stay faithful to Him. We've got to, as somebody said, dare to be a Daniel. To be courageous. To speak up boldly. To take a stand for what we know is right. And what we know that God is doing. You know, Daniel was the only man of his generation willing to continue to worship God and not to compromise his convictions. And he was entrapped in that. And they lied about him and everything else. And they made up this phony law just so they could catch him. And yet God delivered him out of that, showing that he is stronger than any other God. I find it ironic that Darius wanted to show everybody that I'm in charge here. I'm the one you ought to pray to. And then when he tried to get Daniel delivered, he couldn't even deliver Daniel. He's supposed to be the God of all gods and the supreme being that people are praying to. And he couldn't deliver Daniel. And yet the one true God showed that He has power over all gods and delivered Daniel. So my point is simply this. When you trust in the hands of God, when you're resting in His arms, uh, you will never have to uh, uh, feel like you're not enough or that He can't deliver you through it because He absolutely can deliver you through it. He's more powerful than any circumstance that we ever face. It doesn't mean He's going to change the circumstances Oftentimes, He begins to work in us and through us in the circumstances. But rest in what God is doing. So, number one, we're recognizing the attitude of the temple of self. We're resting in what God is going to do to expose it for what it is. We're resting in what God is doing right now, even through these perilous times that we live in. Could it be that God is preparing the soil of this world uh, to reap a great harvest as, as a generation of people who are living and worshiping in the temple of self begin to realize how far short of the glory of God that they have fallen and how far short of the idealistic standards and the bill of goods that's promised to us, could it be that their eyes will be opened to how unsatisfied they are with the gods of this world and their eyes will be hungry and their hearts will be hungry to desire the truth Could it be that God is allowing us to see that in our generation and He's doing a deep work in people's hearts to pull them away from the temple of self and let them see how wonderful and how glorious and how beautiful He truly is. As we read on, not only do we rest in what God will do, not only do we rest in what God is doing, but we rest in what God has done. Verses 13 to 15. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. He said that 
these perilous times, these days, these ages that we live in, people are going to get worse and worse. And we hear this sometimes, man, the times are getting rough. The times are getting bad. Evil men, seducers, they're waxing worse and worse. They're growing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But read on. But continue. I love that verb. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He says, focus on the cross. Remember what God has done for you. Keep your nose in God's Word. Continue in the truth. Don't go to the right hand. Don't go to the left hand. Continue faithfully following after the Lord. Continue walking in His Word every single day. Continue to rest in what God has already done for you and the salvation that you have through faith in Christ Jesus. So we see that we can have peace. We can have hope. We can have joy in this world. And in a temple of self, there is no joy. There may be happiness for a short season, but after the party's over, the happiness decreases dramatically. And so they bounce from one party to the next, from one high to another high to another high, living for the weekend. And I've got to just make it through another work week so that I can fix myself with some high. Not, I'm not just talking about drugs, but I'm saying even experiences, even uh, pursuing times together with uh, exciting times with family, with friends, and everything else that I've just got to keep myself busy in activities and everything else so that I can be distracted from the pain that's lurking within my heart. Many people don't want to be still for even a few minutes to hear a message like this because uh, they know that there's that restlessness in their soul. But there's a way to rest because of what Jesus has done. As He died on the cross for our sins, He made a way so that we can experience His everlasting life that begins the moment we receive Him as Savior and continues for all of eternity as we rest in what He has done. The last thing, the fifth and final thing that we say, we recognize the temple of self for what it is. We rest in what God will do, what He is doing, what He has done. Last of all, what God has said. Verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness so that the man of God may be perfect, may be mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, well equipped unto all good works. You see, God has given us His Word. And let me back up and say it this way. Many times we quote 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 as a central passage on the inspiration of God's Word. The word inspiration literally means God-breathed. And yet we don't take it in context. You see, Timothy, excuse me, Paul is telling Timothy here that God gave us His Word as a, a way to fuel us as we live during these perilous times that we live in. And can it be that the reason that we're uh, focused on the perilous times more than we're focused on the Savior is because we're not in the Word of God enough. It's because we don't know God's Word and what God has said in His Word. That's why we need to be in God's Word. God didn't just inspire this book, the Bible, 
so that we can say that we have the God-breathed Word of God, and thank God that we do, but He gave us His Word to be a guide for us, to show us Himself, to reveal His heart. You know, we'd like to spend just 30 minutes of our lifetime with our favorite celebrity. You know, think up whoever that may be, your favorite actor, your favorite athlete, a favorite business leader, or favorite political leader. Whoever your hero is, humanly speaking, if you could just spend one hour out of your entire lifetime with this person, what hoops would you jump through to get that occasion? And if it was promised to you that you could have one hour, you would travel as far as you had to, spend what money you had to get this opportunity to speak with this person for one hour. And yet God has revealed His heart to us through His Word. We have it here. God breathed. God inspired that we can know Him through it and know how to escape this temple of self and know how to find rest for our souls in what He has done for us. We can't neglect His Word. Biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high, even among church-going people. It's sad to see how many church-going people don't know the basics of the Word of God anymore. We're not in the Word. It's because we're worshiping at the temple of self and if we can squeeze in a little bit of the Word here and there, then we may try to, and we just bounce around from here and there like a yo-yo all over the place. But yet, God has given us His Word for a definite purpose, and He spells it out for us here in verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine. That's so that we can know. Uh, think of it with me like a highway. You're driving down the road, You've got the road signs. It's guiding you, directing you. You've got a GPS system that's telling you this is the road you need to be on to get to your destination. And you're driving down the road watching the GPS and you're following it. That's the doctrine. That's God's Word given to us for teaching. But it's also given to us for a second thing it says here. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof. Now what happens if you've got your GPS going and you make a wrong turn? You know, it's... Uh, Changing your route, do a U-turn. You know, they say all kinds of crazy things to get you to get back on the right path. Well, God's Word offers us reproof. It shows us when we are wrong. It shows us when we are immoral. It shows us when we've gone away or gone astray from the path of God. It offers us reproof. But it doesn't just leave us there saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you made a wrong turn. No, it offers us correction. It reroutes, as the GPS would say, rerouting, rerouting, and it gets you back on the right path to where you need to go. It gives us that correction. And hopefully, in some small way, the sermon here today isn't just pointing out the problems with the temple of self, but it's showing us there is a way to rest. There's a way to correct it. It's found in what God has said, what God has done, and what God has given to us in His Word. And then it shows us instruction in righteousness. How do we stay on the right path? How do we keep going the right way? We keep following faithfully after the Lord. The temple of self is a cruel taskmaster. It's an awful place to live. And yet so many people in our generations today are worshiping in the temple of self. There's a way away from that. As I said, when, when you realize the end of the temple of self and you realize there's no rest in that life, you're constantly pursuing perfection. 
and trying to be better and do better and you're constantly battling the feelings that I can't measure up. I'm not enough. I can't be enough. I can't do enough. And we burn ourselves out working, working, working around the clock trying to accomplish as much as we possibly can in this lifetime and we're chasing and we're chasing and we're chasing and we're living like we're constantly out of breath, pushing the pedal to the metal every single day that we live and we feel like it's hopeless. There's no joy in that life. There's no peace in that life. There's no rest in that life. And yet it's the only life we know. So we keep pursuing. We keep chasing. We keep going 90 miles an hour trying to grab everything that we can out of this life. Jesus offers us a much better way. He said it like this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. Come unto me. That's the invitation from Jesus. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take off the yoke of the temple of self. Take off all the pursuit of the things that you feel like you've got to pursue or that this culture has told you you've got to pursue. Lay that down and take up the yoke of Jesus Christ. and said, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am gentle. I am meek and lowly in heart. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is speaking to religious people in Matthew chapter 11 when He says those words. They had been striving. They had been trying to appease their God and trying to do everything they can to be right and do right and live up to some standard that they had created for themselves. And Jesus says, no, come away from that and come to Me. Come find your rest in Me. And that's the simple invitation from Jesus. And that's the invitation given at the book, in the book of Revelation at the very last chapter. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, let him who would take of the water of life freely come. That's the invitation. Come to Jesus. Lay down the temple of self. Leave that place. Shut the door on that place. Don't return and find rest in the arms of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a time of prayer and invitation. Heavenly Father, thank You that You are the person of rest. Rest is not heaven. Rest is not a destination. But rest is a person. It's found in You, Lord God. Uh, religiosity tells us to strive and strive and strive. And yes, there is a sense that we persevere. Yes, there is a sense that we have to endure. Daniel had to endure that walk to the den of lions. He had to endure being cast down into it. He had to endure some things. He had to make some decisions that were not popular in his generation. We may be faced with the same thing, but let us rest in you as Daniel rested in you. And I think he found rest in that den of lions. He didn't even have a scratch on him when he was pulled out the next day. We can trust you no matter what. As we opened our service today, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. What a perfect song to sing that fits so well with this passage of Scripture that we walk through 2 Timothy chapter 3. Thank you, Lord, for lining those things up for us. I believe that You're wanting that message to resonate in our 
heads and in our hearts loud and clear to come and find rest for our souls in the person and in what Jesus has done for us in the person and in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So I pray for each one who is here today. Maybe there's some here today or some that are watching that really need this message because they've never received you as Savior. I pray that today would be that day that they call upon you as Savior. And it could be there are some people here that are even members of our church that have been worshiping at the temple of self. Maybe some of those things have been exposed for the first time, or maybe just the first time in a long time in their hearts. And you're calling them to leave that behind and to pursue you in a deeper way, to come to know you in a more intimate way. I pray that they would take that step of faith today. And Lord, I just ask that you would minister through the power of the Holy Spirit